Wonderful. While you're doing that, I want to read to you something I read this week by an author called Stephen Um. He says this. Our modern society, uh, our modern society's narrative is one of progression, development, advancement, boundary pushing and evolution. We want the newest, the fastest, the sharpest, the cleanest, the hottest, the touted, the praised and the must have commodities. To possess these symbols of our society is to assure ourselves that we have not grown stagnant. Behind our obsession with growth and progress lies the fear that when we stop evolving, we will cease to matter or cease to exist. In a culture where only the, where only the fittest survive, we are constantly fine-tuning our lives to display our ability to grow and to adapt and to evolve. We want others to know that we are progressing into the kinds of people that we aspire to be. And this inherent drive for progress and growth is not all bad. Living things are supposed to grow. We should expect that things that have life in them to display that life. Children are expected to grow. Middle school students are expected to advance to high school. Hardworking employees are expected to advance in their careers. We believe there is a natural trajectory for growth. And as a people, we are obsessed with growth, finding our fulfillment, happiness, and meaning. We look to be actualized, that is to grow into the people that we believe we have the latent potential to become. That's his social commentary on our world, but it's not too different from the Corinthians of the first century. They lived in an upwardly mobile society where they lived to achieve and to progress and to grow. And they were looking for an expression of Christianity that would serve them in their aspirations to climb up the ladder. They wanted leaders and churches that were powerful and wise and progressive so that they could uh, be set apart and receive kudos from the world. They were a group of Christians in that city that were striving for growth by latching on to this teacher or that teaching that would somehow help them elevate themselves to higher levels of maturity. But unfortunately, the Corinthians' growth had been derailed because they had allowed deep divisions to plague the church. The congregation was lining up behind their favourite pastor or behind their favourite leader and they were boasting in them and their gifts and their skills and their abilities in such a way that they were quarrelling amongst one another and there was bitter divisions, prideful divisions that were commonplace in the church. So as we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4, Paul is uh, issuing a kind of a sustained argument to uh, address this wretched and bitter factionalism that was in the church. And he's been seeking to melt the pride that is at work that underlines all of the boasting and the division that's in the Corinthian church. And he's done this by tackling two deep-seated heart issues that undermine the church's unity. So the first thing that he's been tackling in these chapters is that the Corinthians are in danger of rejecting the gospel and especially the message of the cross because they considered it weak and foolish and they've been rejecting that in favour of the pomp and the prestige of human wisdom that was more sexy and successful in the eyes of the pagan world. And so Paul has gone to great lengths in these opening chapters to carefully and 
powerfully expose the wood and the hay and the straw that the Corinthians were building with and to remind them of the sure foundation of Jesus Christ crucified, which is where the true power and wisdom of God resides. Now, the second thing that the Corinthians were misunderstanding is that they misunderstood the nature of the church and its leadership. They had adopted cultural norms and brought them into the world, from the world into the church, and human wisdom and power had displaced the gospel so that the spotlight fell not on Jesus as it should, but on human leaders and pastors where it shouldn't be. And so Paul now is going to challenge their worldly perspective and hopefully purge their wrong thinking and bring them back in line with the gospel. He's aiming to restore their unity, to get them back on the mission of making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ to treasure and apply and proclaim the gospel in their lives. And so in chapters one to, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, that we're just about to read, Paul has got two points for us this morning, two things that he wants to draw our attention to. Firstly, he's going to tell us about the wrong way to think about church leadership. And then he's going to tell us about the right way to think about church leadership. But before we dive in, let's read God's word together and hear God speak. This is chapter 3. Verses 1 to 9. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but... God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. It's God's word to us this morning. So there's those... Two points in the text that Paul wants to draw our attention to. And the first one that we're going to look at is this. The wrong way to think about church leaders. The wrong way to think about church leaders. And that's in verses 1 to 4. Now, verse 1 opens with irony, which we'll get to in a second. But before we do, don't quickly read over the first four or five words of chapter 3. Because Paul goes to speak to them as brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, he wants them to be aware that he recognises that they are family, that they are his brothers and sisters. It's an expression of his love and his affection and his care for them. But just for a moment, think about it a little bit more deeply with me. There was no church in the New Testament that was in such a mess as the Corinthians. Now, the Galatians were in a pretty bad mess, but I think the Corinthians were in the, they were the messiest church in the New Testament. And much of that mess was aimed directly at Paul 
himself. And yet, throughout this letter, Paul never ever fails to consider the Corinthians as his brothers and sisters. He's able to look beyond the mess to see the grace of God at work in them. And so we should just ask ourselves a question. This one is for free, if you like. Um, Are we able to do that? Am I able to do that? You see, God is never not working in the lives of his children and in the life of his church. And so we must have eyes to see God's grace at work in his people, just as Paul did. For if we do, that will preserve and protect and cultivate unity. So we've got to ask ourselves a question. Do I, do you, do we, when we look at the church, when we look at individuals and others in the, in the church, and when we look at the church as a whole, what are our eyes first drawn to? Do we see the grace of God at work in the lives of others and what he's doing in us corporately? Is that what we primarily talk about with other members in the privacy of our own homes? Or do you, do I, do we see what is wrong and what needs attention? Because there will always be things that are wrong and that need attention. But if the main focus is on the mess rather than on the grace of God then we're in danger of being Corinthian and in danger of division. So Paul calls them brothers and sisters, and it's a term term loaded with grace and love, and it fosters unity. But then he gets into the nitty gritty, and verses one to four would have been absolutely shocking and offensive, like a punch in the gut to the Corinthians, because the irony is that the very people who thought of themselves as having achieved a boss level spirituality in Christianity, that they were somehow the super spiritual elite, that they had moved on beyond Paul, that they had moved on from his weak and foolish message of the cross. They were in for a shock because Paul here calls them or he says to them, I cannot call you spiritual people. Now, Remember what we said last week and what he's been saying in in chapter two. He's talked about true wisdom. He's talked about what it means to be spiritual. He's told us that we have the mind of Christ. That was all stuff that the Corinthians would have gobbled up for breakfast. They would have loved that kind of stuff. But now in verse one of chapter three, he says, but I can't address you as spiritual people. Now, last week we said that spiritual people were people who had the Holy Spirit within inside them. They were people of the Spirit. So now is Paul changing his mind? Is he saying that the Corinthians are not spiritual people? Are they, are they not Christians? But he's just called them brothers and sisters, so they must be Christians. So hang on a minute, Paul, you're confusing us. And let me give you the answer of what I think he's doing here. You see, in chapter 2, Paul spoke of two categories of people. On the one hand the natural or unspiritual man, and on the other hand, the spiritual or the mature, those with the Holy Spirit. But that's an oversimplification, and Paul knows that, and so he is going to introduce a third category, because the two former categories pass over a group of people that he needs to speak to. The Corinthians were truly his brothers and sisters. They were true, genuine Christians. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what he said to them at the beginning of chapter one in verses one and two, that they were sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So they are genuine Christians and yet they're not spiritual people in the sense that they're not living as those who have the Spirit. They're not walking by the Spirit. And this third category that he introduces is is a sort of a, a fleshly Christian, a carnal Christian. 
Now, it's not a category that should exist, but it's a category that, that is a reality because that's where the Corinthians are. They have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, but they are still looking more like the world around them than they are of Christ. But he's not finished there with insulting them, if you like. He goes on to tell them that they are infants in Christ, that they're big babies. Now, the problem isn't that they were babies, because whenever you first respond to the gospel and you are drawn out of darkness into light, you begin as a newborn. You're born again. You are a baby Christian. But the problem for the Corinthians was that they were still babies. Look with me at verse 2 because this is where we see it. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you weren't weaned yet. You hadn't grown. And even now, even now, you are not yet ready. So the problem was that they were big babies. And that even now represents maybe four or five years since Paul first arrived in Corinth and they responded to the gospel. So for four or five years, the Corinthians had made little progress in their Christian faith. They were still babies. They hadn't grown. They were still living like the world around them. They were not living according to the gospel-centered, gospel-shaped life that they had received in Christ. And so their growth had stagnated and was stunted. Now, <clears throat> I love babies. Uh, you know, we've obviously had six ourselves. We've got some very cute babies in the church right now. Tim was leading. Little Jesse is a very cute bundle of joy. Um, isn't that right, Tim? Yeah. Good, yes. Uh, but the other thing we know about babies is that they, whilst being cute, they are the most self-centered little me monsters on the planet. Babies are always screaming for the attention of their mum and dad. And it doesn't matter what time of the day it is, night or day, they are issuing forth their demands and they don't stop screaming or yelling until they get their own way, until they get what they want. Now, is that acceptable behavior for a baby? Well, of course it is. Because they can't speak, they can't help themselves. They need someone to dote on them. And so that's acceptable behavior. But if you see a 15-year-old or a 50-year-old or even a 5-year-old behaving in that way, then we start to worry and wonder. Claire was in the hairdressers recently and uh, she's telling me that, relaying this story of a woman who was sat next to her in the next chair who was telling the, uh, the lady who was cutting her hair and, and Claire and the lady who was cutting her hair about how she uh, tries to manipulate and control her husband by when she wants something and she doesn't get her own way, she lies on the floor and she screams like a baby. This is a genuine story. And she was proudly boasting that that was the way that she got her husband to do the things that she wanted to do. And Claire was just saying to me, I just wanted to say to her, stop. That's ridiculous. You big baby, grow up. Stop being so childish. That's not the way that you are supposed to live. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. To be big babies, to be carnal Christians, to be fleshly Christians is a sad and a tragic category to be numbered in. In fact, it's an oxymoron. It's something that really shouldn't exist. To be a Christian and yet to be characterized by the old worldly values and worldly attitudes and worldly thinking and worldly ethics and worldly behavior, he tells us in verse 3, is behaving only in a human way. 
It's a natural, unspiritual way of living. And it derails and stunts growth and maturity. Now, what evidence does Paul have to make such a claim? Well, he tells us in verse 3, if you look there with me, for you uh, are not yet ready to be fed with solid food. Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Are you not behaving in only human ways? The evidence of the Corinthians' immaturity was that there was jealousy and strife and quarreling and division among them as a church. They had wrong thinking about church leaders. He goes on then to say in verse 4 that really when you align yourself with a particular leader and when you boast about them and when you disparage the other leaders around as well, you're not being spiritual, you're not being mature, you're being a big baby. You're behaving in merely human ways, indistinguishable from the world. Now, the particular flashpoint in Corinth was a rivalry of partisan factions between Paul and Apollos. Now, there's no indication that Paul and Apollos had anything, any falling out between themselves. In fact, uh, they, they appear in the New Testament to be good friends, to be recognizing one another as co-workers in the gospel and working together to see Christ proclaimed. But their factions, their, the people, that, their groupies that had come, were lining up behind them were arguing about who was the best. Now imagine a conversation between members of the Corinthian church, perhaps after church, over coffee, like we used to do back in the good old days. And maybe one would say, oh, I loved Paul's preaching this morning. I could listen to him for hours. And then someone would say, you, you mean Paul, the guy who put Eutychus to sleep and he fell out of the window and died of boredom listening to him? Oh, but, but Paul raised him from the dead, didn't he? Because he was, that's how much power Paul has. Oh, but you haven't heard Apollos, have you? The other guy might say. He's an eloquent man. He's competent in the scriptures. Even Luke knows that. I love his style. He's so warm. He's so relational. He really gets me. He connects with me. He understands me. You know, whenever he preaches, it feels like he's just preaching to me. He gets right at my heart and it's so wonderful and rich. But I just find Paul angry all the time. He demands an obedience that I can't match up to. He always is rebuking me. He makes me feel bad about myself. And then the other guy might say, oh, yeah, but Paul, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, didn't he? God really is using him. He's in the big league of pastors. And the other guy might respond, yeah, but even Peter says the things that Paul writes, they're hard to understand. And I don't like the nerve that he has to, to call people out for their sins publicly by name in his letters. I mean, what, what's the nerve of that kind of guy? And you could see if you were overhearing a conversation like that, how quickly divisions could arise. The Corinthians believed that siding with Paul indicated their spiritual maturity, but Paul tells them it indicates their spiritual poverty. They were living in just merely human ways. Now, let's bring that home and apply it to you and me this morning before we go any further. Because for us to identify with a particular leader at the expense of other leaders in the church is not what Holy Spirit filled Christians do. But it could happen in our church. When one pastor meets your expectations 
and another doesn't. Say, I really, you really want to see me, but I can't see you till next week, but Matt can see you tomorrow. What do we think about that? When one pastor meets your personal preferences, but others don't. When one pastor has your preferred personality or shares your interests or has the gift mix that you like or shares your particular passion or agenda for justice issues or he just really connects with you relationally but the other guys don't. What do we do with that? How do we respond? Do we pit pastors against one another in our own minds and hearts? Do we have bad attitudes, make prideful, critical judgments, harbour offences and allow bitterness to take root? Do we go around seeking to discredit those that we don't like in conversations with others? Or maybe on the, on the other side of it, we perhaps even in the deepest, darkest places of our own hearts that we really don't like to admit to, we think, well, if I could get in with that guy, I could really go places in this church. It happens in churches and it could happen in our church. And it's subtle. So we've got to guard our hearts because we could so easily slip into Corinthian carnal behavior. We've got to heed Paul's warning that raising up one leader over another always leads to critical attitudes of other leaders and division in the church. Now, obviously, hopefully, having said all of that, we all understand the difference between grace-motivated, Christ-exalting, constructive critique that leaders need. But that's different from a critical and cynical spirit that divides churches when it's exposed to others. But there's also a flip side to this as well for pastors, that we can crave, I can crave, top spot in people's attention and affections. I can be so consumed with a desire to be liked and well thought of and to be highly esteemed for my preaching that I can maneuver and do things in such a way to gain acceptance and approval and, a, and a, a encouragement and appreciation. It's not beyond us to slip down the slippery slope of building our own little kingdom instead of building Christ's kingdom. And Paul tells us that all of these wrong views of leadership are rooted in pride. They're rooted in pride. It's pride that stunts our growth. It's pride that causes us to stagnate. It's pride that, that uh, curtails our maturity. It's pride that destroys the unity of the church. It's pride that damages the witness of the church to the world. So we've got to correct our wrong view of church leadership and get a right view of church leadership. And that's the second point. And that's what verses five to nine draw our attention to. Paul is setting out to put the Corinthians back on the right path by giving them just some very simple but important truths to help them think rightly about church leaders. Now, there's seven of these and I've only got a few minutes left, but they're short and quick. But here's how Paul tells us to think rightly about church leaders. Number one, we're servants. It's verse five. Church leaders are servants. We've been tasked by God to serve his people and his purposes. That means we're not creators of new philosophies. We are messengers of the message of the cross, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Actually, the word servants there could better be translated waiters, table waiters. So pastors are not honoured guests. We don't sit at the top table. We don't even own the house or make the food. We just are busboys. We'd serve the tables. We're called to 
serve on behalf of the master in his name under his authority. And so a right view of leadership means that we do not put leaders in the wrong place. Secondly, again in verse 5, Paul tells us that church leaders are not only servants but conduits, like a, like a pipe or a channel by which things flow. He says we are leaders, servants through whom the Corinthians believed. So the power that brings people to faith does not and never did ever reside in any leader whatsoever. God's work and God's power is done through leaders, but it's God's power and God's work. And the effectiveness of any pastor is in, not inherently in, of, in themselves or in the gifts that they have. It's the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. So we've got to be clear, church leaders are not the saviour, we're not the gospel, we're not the spirit, we're not the source of power, we're definitely not God, we don't originate ideas, we don't create philosophies, we just deliver, we serve. So we must be careful to have a right view of church leadership and not give leaders undue credit. Thirdly, leaders are different. This is verse 6. God assigns tasks to different leaders. Paul planted, Apollos watered, and God gives different personalities, different gifts, different roles and responsibilities, and different involvement in people's lives to different pastors. Some preach more, some counsel more, some evangelize more, some administrate more, but all serve in different ways, exercising the different gifts that God has given, and every servant is necessary. No one man has it all. And so we're all tasked by God with different jobs, important and significant jobs, but not ultimately determinative jobs because we're to work faithfully, but it's God that gives the growth. And Paul is very clear about that in verse six and in verse seven. Paul does this bit, Apollos does that bit, Peter was doing this over here, but God was really doing all of the real work. He was making the seed grow. He was bringing about the fruit and he will bring about the harvest. And without his life-giving work, all of the planting and all of the watering is in vain. So we've got to be careful not to think that church leaders should be one size fits all. Fourth, church leaders are nothing. This is verse 7. But Paul says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Church leaders are nothing. Now, that's not Paul knocking pastoral leadership or diminishing its importance in any way or making it redundant or unnecessary or insignificant because there's plenty of places in the scriptures where God tells us that leaders are a gift to his church to equip them for works of service. But the men filling the roles are nothing in comparison to the God who is everything. Think about it like this. God shines as brightly as the midday sun so you can barely see the candle that I might hold. Now, to be sure, leaders do plant and water. Pastoral ministry is valuable. Nothingness does not mean less honourable, but Paul's emphasis falls on God, not man. He is the great gardener. All of the energy and the work of germination and growth and fruition and harvest comes from God alone. So we must be careful to have a right view of church leadership and not ascribe glory that belongs to God to church leaders. Number five, church leaders are to be one. This is verse eight. We're not rivals, we're teammates, serving the same master, on the same team, involved in the same project. There should be no room for competition, for power plays, for one-upmanship. It's not a popularity contest. We are to be one. 
one in purpose to build up the church and to equip the saints for workers of ministry and to make much of Jesus. We should be one in dependence upon God, recognizing that he alone gives the growth. So we pray for it and we trust him for it. One in love for the church that we recognize we're brothers and sisters together. One in message to preach Christ and him crucified. So we must have a right view of church leaders and not divide them. Sixth, church leaders will be assessed. This is verse eight. Again, different tasks, different opportunities, different gifts, different contributions. Every piece of service matters, but all will be assessed by God. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, it's not a competition where we will be compared and contrasted with one another and rewarded according to worldly standards of success. Paul tells us that we will be assessed by God and rewarded not on the basis of fruit, but on the basis of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Have we worked hard, done God's work in God's way for God's glory? We must be careful not to misjudge church leaders by worldly standards. And then seventh and finally, church leaders belong to God. In verse 9, Paul tells us that they are God's fellow workers. But that's not putting us on the same level as God, that we are fellow workers with God, somehow like joint partners in a business venture. No, leaders are co-workers one with another and we belong to God. The apostrophe there indicates God. we're God's possession. And so is the field that we work in, the church. It all belongs to God. Leaders don't own the church. It's not my church, not Pete's church. Not, you're not our people. You're God's people. None of us are indispensable. We belong to God. We don't even belong to ourselves. We belong to God because we've been purchased through the blood of Christ. And so has the church. The church is God's field and he is the great farmer and the great gardener. And so we must be careful to not take ownership of that which belongs to God. So that's the right way to think about church leaders. We've got to reject the wrong view and we've got to embrace the right view of God, his gospel, his church, his church leaders and ourselves. And it means that we're not to be big babies. We need to adjust our view of leadership to see what really matters. And that is who God is and what God is doing. The Corinthian sin was to make much of men. And to make little of Christ. Paul corrects them here and says this. Make much of Christ. So let's strive not to make the same mistakes in Corinth. Let's strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. To make much of Christ for the glory of God. Let me pray.